Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University's research and how it benefits people and communities locally, nationally and around the world. My name is Craig Telfer and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor John Lennon, the Dean of the Glasgow School for Business and Society and the man who coined the term we're going to be discussing today, dark tourism. John, thanks very much for speaking to me. No problem at all. Happy to do it. Now, we'll start with the phrase dark tourism itself. What does it mean? For me, when developing this, I believed we needed an umbrella or a general term that encompassed the attraction we as humans feel towards the darker side of our nature, our ability to do evil and our ability to perpetrate crimes often crimes against humanity. So the interest is that tourists, as humans, as normal uh, visitors, are also intrigued by this and will visit sites of incarceration, sites of mass killing, sites of assassination, battlefield sites, basically sites where the very worst of our human nature is demonstrated, whether it's in the murder or uh, mass execution of a race or a a religion, or whether it's uh, an isolated uh, incarceration, such as Mandela's uh, cell Mm -hmm. uh, on Robben Island in South Africa, or the assassination site of John F. Kennedy in Dallas. So such sites are important because they offer evidential proof and documentary evidence that such awfulness, such terrible events that we perpetrate have actually occurred. So in in many locations, in many parts of the world, these sites, which are often visitor centres, which are often sites open to tourists, remain important elements of learning and of narrative to, to do with this. Now, in locations like Germany or Poland, the presence of concentration camps mm. and evidence of the Nazi regime would not be challenged. Um, however, in other parts of the world, such as Cambodia, um, such as uh, f- parts of the former Soviet Union, the presence of um, genocide sites or sites of mass incarceration may well be lost over time. And with the loss goes the potential loss of evidence and the loss of history and the loss of narrative. So it's, a, it's an interesting area where tourism meets history mm-hmm. and tourism meets evidence and tourism meets crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. But be clear that tourists, like everyone else, are fascinated by the dark side of things. Now, yeah. we see that in... Yeah, that's, Lin- some, that's something I was going to ask you on. Yeah. Say, where does this fascination come from? We all, as humans, seem to share a morbid fascination with death. It's something we all have in common. So that's evidenced in everything from the, the most popular genre of fiction, which is crime, the, the popularity of TV and satellite television shows that are fixated around murder and crime, uh, particularly grisly ones. So whether it's murderers, whether it's fictional or authentic, it seems to offer an entertainment to us that we are all morbidly fixated with and we wish to peer uh, and un- at and understand better this this element of what it is to be human. You mentioned places like uh, Germany, Poland, Cambodia. Can you give more examples of dark tourism sites? 
Yeah, there are very many around the world and, um, you know, we can look at um, battlefield sites from Waterloo to Manassas, the first uh, site of the American Civil War, also known as the First Battle of Bull Run, where the battlefield site was sold the next day for development as a tourist attraction. Um, you have to admire the Americans. Also, <laughs> you kind of look at places like the Battle of Waterloo, where in 1815, ladies and gentlemen pulled up their carriages to watch the battle taking place in the distance. The viewing of hangings in London uh, in the 16th century. The viewing of executions now in Saudi Arabia. But, but back again, we can find isolated murder sites, sites of abduction, sites of assassination like the Kennedy one, mm. the Martin Luther King one, the Lorraine Motel. And with all these sites comes interesting narratives about what constitutes real and authentic and what kind of an experience is being created here, whether it's voyeuristic, experiential, or it's about documentation, history and narrative, or is it somewhere in between? So whether it's a First World War grave site in northern France or Belgium, uh, or the the, the sites in Ypres, or whether it's the Changi prisoner of war camp in Singapore. All of these uh, sites, which have become places visitors and tourists go and see, have a narrative and an important evidential role, but they're also sites that draw people, that motivate people to visit. So to give you some idea of visitor numbers, Auschwitz-Birkenau, near Krakow in Poland, is in excess of 2 million visitors a year. Now, they oh. are not all Jewish by any means. They, they, they don't all have relatives who are incarcerated there. These are general visitors who are coming to that part of southern Poland, maybe to the city of Krakow, and believing that that is something that they should or would like to visit as part of their tour. So they choose to go and they if you like, they commodify or package this element in with other elements of built and natural heritage that they're viewing. So the, the, the very worst we can do as a species becomes part of your holiday behaviour. How do these dark tourism attractions compare to normal heritage attractions? Well, many normal heritage attractions will have a dark side too because history is usually quite bloody and has victors and losers, but... I suppose the, the main difference with, hard to generalise, but concentration camps, for example, is that they're not paid admission. They tend to be operated by charities or trusts. And they tend to have, in the case of the German concentration camps, a focus on learning and an encouragement to behave in a reverential and respectful fashion. That's not the case everywhere in the world. But some of the more extreme examples, I suppose, do focus on an experiential element. So those people who want to spend a night in the gulag, for example, can pay to, to go and sleep in a, a very basic accommodation. And in some cases of simulation, the whole idea of being a prisoner, being locked up for the night, being shouted at by a, somebody in uniform is actually part of the experience. That stuff goes on in Lithuania and other parts of the world. So you, can, you see where you have freedom and humans have freedom to behave and to create these attractions 
in a democratic society as they want to, some of what we might call the more respectful behaviours are lost and behaviour becomes part of some kind of voyeuristic experiential thing to be captured of course on a selfie and uh, uploaded onto a digital or yeah um, i've seen yeah. people outside auschwitz have been uh, criticized for some of the, the, the some of the poses they've been doing and putting up on, yeah, on yeah. instagram i mean it's the this uploading of the awful images is is a demonstration of the vacuousness of popular culture that you will put the very worst that we as humans are capable of uh, an oven, a gas chamber, uh, next to a picture of a birthday party or a pet. I find that curious uh, <laughs> in the extreme and uh, I don't fully understand it. But then I don't fully understand such sites selling postcards either as they used to. Who would those postcards be sent to and from what and what would you write on them? Are these dark tourism sites uh, sort of important for an area or a country's economy? Economically, they, I mean, anything that attracts two million visitors will create expenditure in travel, trickle-down expenditure in terms of local food and bev. But if you're not charging, then the only revenue streams you're going to get from such sites will be if you have a cafe on site or if you have a retail store. So they would be a primary purpose for certain visitors, but they're certainly part of what we'd call a collection of pull factors in a particular place. So if you're in Berlin, Berlin is full of lots of interesting attractions to do with not just the Second World War and the Cold War, but great museums and uh, interesting markets and uh, suburbs and uh, really cool places but as well as all of that to the north of Berlin there is a concentration camp called Sachsenhausen. It attracts about 1.1 million visitors a year. It is part of Berlin's offer. It's open, you can see it in the same way as you can visit Munich and go to Dachau. Germany is quite open about its past. It's probably one of the best examples of a country where it's transparent about the very worst parts of its history. These places do serve to attract tourists, undoubtedly, so they will have an economic effect. It is, of course, greater if it's two million people paying £20 a head. You know, the Edinburgh Castle example, which is roughly equivalent in terms of total visitor mm. numbers. Now, you talked about Germany's and how they've faced up to the actions of the past. How do they compare to some other countries? Well, yeah, Germany would be at the, the, the top of the scale of approaching the Nazi past openly and transparently and focusing on documentation. The country is racked by debates on conservation of Nazi architecture. In Germany, if you're seen to even knock down a minor building that was to do with the education of children in a Hitler Youth League, there is always the criticism that you are in some way diluting, suppressing or evading the past. So they do really have a very sophisticated approach to this, whether it's you know the crumbling Nuremberg site or a minor official site in a suburb somewhere. You take that approach versus somewhere like Cambodia, where of the killing field sites, there were 345 across the country. There's only one open to the general visitor, and many have been lost. S21, which is the prison camp in, 
in Phnom Penh was part of a network of just under 80, I think. This is the last one remaining. So there you see a regime which is less concerned with conservation, less concerned with the interpretation of a difficult past, which was more recent than the Second World War, 75 to 79. So then you have to look at the current regime and why they don't see covering this history as a priority. And you find that the Prime Minister, who's the longest-serving Prime Minister in the world now, was a former Khmer Rouge officer, a colonel. It's a, as some suggest, he says he was just an ordinary soldier. Nobody disputes he was Khmer Rouge. So his attitude to this period of the past, oh, he's been on record as saying that it, it, it is of no merit to look at the past. It's no merit to rake over these ash, ashes. And remember... After the Khmer Rouge fell, there were only less than half a dozen people tried for that genocide. And those trials only occurred some 30 years after that period, funded by foreign countries, Norway, the Netherlands. So it's, a, it's an indicator of the maturity or sophistication of the society that they're able to look back and explore their difficult routes. Now, we should highlight Britain in this respect because we are far from perfect. And it's only recently we've begun to explore mm. our impact on the development across the world through our colonial imperialist past, but also through our links to the slave trade and the reason Britain got so rich and the reason we have such a grand cemetery in Glasgow, the necropolis. As you walk around those graves and you look at those proud sort of Scottish names, you scratch your head and you wonder, how did they get so wealthy? How did that merchant city get built? And of course, it's on the back of cotton and trade, mm -hmm. which is in turn on the back of human slavery, which we were a big part of. So... You could go to the necropolis and not catch that. There's not many notices that tell you that. So we've still got a job to do here, I would say. And you can see we've begun this with slavery museums in places like Liverpool. But, you know, if I was asked where would I go to get a good explanation of how Britain's colonial imperialist past basically ensured that Africa would remain on its knees for so long in terms of development, I might struggle where to find that in the British Museum in terms of cause and effect. Like, I would struggle in the Smithsonian to find detail on the Indian Wars, as they were called, the wars against the indigenous ethnic Native Americans, who of course were pushed west and obliterated as America starts its history in 1776, but actually there's a much older civilization who were wiped out. So where do you get that story? People will tell you, go and look at the Museum of the Native American. I have done this. And there's very interesting exhibits on moccasins and how Native Americans lived. But when you ask, so where do I learn about the Indian Wars? How do I find out how big this genocide was, because that's not a word that America uses mm -hmm. very often when it discusses its past. It's getting more acceptable now, but I still think that 
many of the, particularly the Western powers, Britain, the US, the colonial powers in Europe, are slowly starting to explore their past. This stuff, this dark history, tears countries apart. Look at Spain and the way it's divided on the issue of Franco's grave and how that country hasn't come to deal with that part of its past. Look at Italy. Where do you go in Italy to try and find a good museum to tell you the story of the fascist regime of Mussolini? In fact, in the case of Mussolini, you can visit his grave, uh, which is in a crypt, and it's the grandest grave in the graveyard. You can visit the house he was born in, which has a tourist board sign pointing to it. Now, imagine if this was Hitler. Hitler has no grave. Hitler's house that he was born in was a much disputed and finally, I think, knocked down. It's in Austria. So you can see how countries differ mm -hmm. in their approach. And Italy really hasn't grasped... Uh, that issue with the fascist past. Why is, why, is, why is that? Why have they not been able to do it? Where does Germany have? Yeah, that is a very good question. There is an ambivalence to the fascist past in Italy, and there is. I have written a paper on it which is about to be published, and it's deep-rooted in that the fascist party was never outlawed in Italy after the Second World War, and that there were always very far-right parties that survived under different headings throughout that period. The post-Second World War period was peculiar in Italy with Reconstruction and the fascist heartlands in the north still remaining very strongly positive or ambivalent to that past. I, I went to look at those Neo, they're not neo, they're Nazi supermarkets. So you have in Pradapio, where Mussolini was born, you have three supermarkets selling Nazi memorabilia, swastikas, SS banners. And this is open, this is open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I walked in there. It's very, uh, it's quite legal in Italy since I think the mid-80s to sell this stuff. Stuff that would be totally illegal to sell in Germany. Mm -hmm. The um, Pradapio is his grave site. I thought it might be hard to find. It towers over the other graves. It's a real Nazi or fascist veneration site. I took photographs of the, the book there, and it's full of all the fascist football chants mm. in, Ital in Italian and all this praise for Mussolini. And then, of course, you visit the Mussolini Museum and the Mussolini House. These are uncritical appraisals of a guy who committed war crimes against defenceless Africans in what was then Abyssinia, Ethiopia. So this treatment in Italy is still a, a dark mark. When I was there, wildly, and visiting these sites, they said, oh, you're really interested in this, aren't you? You must come back when we have the marches. <laughs> <laughs> So they have marches three times a year on the on his birthday when they marched on Rome, the fascists. Um, there's there's another there's three dates um, where neo Nazis dressed as black shirts will parade through this town giving fascist salutes. That's very um, scary to think of that. Yeah, so that's still going on. I've got photographs of all that stuff. And that's Italy. And I'm a big Italy fan, you know, as a tourism destination. Uh, small town Italy, some of the best in the world. Great wine, great food, nice people. They like kids. The places look like film sets. 
But there is this. And, you know, travelling, you know, with my family, my wife is like, she knows there's always an ulterior motive that I want to scrape away these layers and get to the heart of, why is this society like this? Why haven't they faced this part of their past? And uh, whether it's the fascist architecture in places like Milan that's being reappraised and people are saying oh this um, sort of masculine realism or whatever is very important and very significant well okay it was built by architects who were chosen because they were fascists it was built by people who complied with a particular worldview these weren't random creative people these were pinpointed by the dictatorship to represent a kind of re-revival of Rome. That's what they were about. And those sites are now um, have a degree of conservation around them, you know. So now I'm not suggesting the buildings are wrong, but the buildings have a narrative that needs to be told. Mm -hmm. So you will see these buildings in Berlin and they will have plaques on them telling yeah. you mm -hmm. this was the SS headquarters, this was where they tortured people. Before then, it was a Habsburg army barracks or whatever. So I'm not suggesting you tear down everything that was to do with fascism because that would be like destroying evidence. But rather, you have to create the narrative. You have to create the narrative that's neutral, that's open, that's transparent, that attempts to teach people about how these things occurred and how we can potentially stop them in the future. John, which of the sites you've visited has left the biggest impact on you? Mm. There are big sites like Auschwitz-Birkenau where you think the enormity of what was perpetrated there is so profound. And I do say every time I've been back there, I'm never coming back here again. And I've been there three times and I, it, it's like a boomerang. You know, it keeps, there always seems to be some reason for me to go back. But there's, there's places that will catch you there's a place in the czech republic called terezin it's within driving distance of prague and it's uh, the germans called it theresenstadt and it was very heart moving rending because it was a holding camp so they brought people and put them into a essentially uh, a confined former military barracks which they called a ghetto it was like a prison but the the Jewish people, they're predominantly Jews who were there, thought they were this was their new home. So they started making schools and started um, opera houses. And then, of course, every two weeks they would wipe everyone out. They'd be moved into Auschwitz and exterminated because everything was calculated. So they knew how long it would take to deal with what they talked of as the Jewish problem. So. The train carriages were meticulously calculated to maximise the number of prisoners. The prisoners would be then graded, work-ready, or straight to execution. So that was, a, that was a miserable place because you got this feeling of transitory nature of them and they'd be, they were just a holding camp and they had no idea. So that was bad, I thought. I know Chernobyl has recently returned mm. to the mainstream consciousness thanks to the HBO drama series of the same name. Now, Chernobyl's kind of different to the places we've spoken about so far because it was the area of a disaster rather than like systematic murders. I mean, why does Chernobyl hold the same fascination as uh, places like Auschwitz and uh, the killing fields? 
Well, spectacle, um, voyeuristic nature, weird experience to go and see it. It is also a site of death, you know, people did die and are still dying as a result of Chernobyl. It's voyeuristic because it looks like a dystopian future, it looks like a deserted urban location after the end of the world where the greenery's taking over again, the roads aren't running, so it is, um, in that sense, it's a very unusual location and people search for experiences that are different, they don't want to go where their mates went, they want to go to somewhere that sets them apart, makes them look cool, interesting, zany. So these places of death, these places of evacuation, these unusual places become places that fascinate and drive tourists to visit them. So death has a peculiar influence on tourist sites because it can be very off-putting. You don't go and visit a war zone, but it would seem that as soon as the war is over, you want to get to that zone pretty quickly. So in Sarajevo, there was a massacre trail within days of the massacre being perpetrated. So people want to get close and touch death. Nearer to home, the Tour of the Troubles in Belfast, which has been going since the late 70s, you would get into a black cab and you'd be taken round infamous sites where murders and other evil had been perpetrated and you were in those days being taken round by people who were part of the organisations as they were euphemistically known then. Um, I did do tours of the Troubles um, some of them were even historically accurate. You never felt like <laughs> pointing out when they had the dates wrong. It was, it was, there was a degree of sensitivity that even I was capable of, uh, of offering on those occasions. But yeah, so there is a market for this. I mean, people are, particularly in Belfast and Derry, were going to visit and photograph the murals at the worst times of the conflict there. Those murals still remain one of the most photographed sites in Northern Ireland. Now, the Northern Ireland uh, administration in Belfast decided at one stage that these murals were not the right image for the new Belfast. And they, I remember them asking me for an opinion on it, and I said, well, they're your history, you don't cover up your history. But their intention was to paint them all white, cover them all up. And I said, well, you know, this is, this is like evasion of a past, you know, to do this. And anyway, it's the reason a lot of people come. So then they came up with a very weird compromise where they'd only paint over the ten worst ones, which leads you to... <laughs> so what constitutes a bad one and what constitutes a good one? And who can say? Mm -hmm. Oh, we thought we'd ask you. And I said, I don't think you heard my answer the first time. I said, I don't think it's a good idea to paint over any of this because unless you can face up to this, this mm -hmm. is part of what makes you what you are. Now, John, you've recently done some work in Kazakhstan. Can you talk to me about that? So that's to do with the Gulag. And the Gulag was a very important part of the former Soviet Union. It was a process that originated in the time of Lenin, uh, in uh, 1918 and the last gulags were only closed by Gorbachev uh, in 1989. 18 million, more than 18 million people went through the gulag system 
of which roughly half died as part of that. They weren't deliberately executed, but they were treated incredibly badly, starved, moved around almost like cattle, and they were fed when they wanted people to work and not fed when they didn't. Life was fairly cheap. So, and gulags were part of a, a, a Russification and deportation strategy, so people were moved all around the former Soviet Union, creating all sorts of different pockets of population and mixes of sort of uh, ethnicities and races there. But I suppose I'm interested in it because, unlike the concentration camps, it hasn't enjoyed the visual and narrative fiction interest or televisual interest or filmic interest. There are less books on the Gulag, there are certainly less films, uh, and there's less film of the Gulags. You see, we have famous film of... American soldiers liberating yeah. Dachau, um, stuff that's uh, images of concentration camps that are burned in your brain, you can never get them off. There's much less filmic evidence of the Gulag, so there's much less knowledge of the Gulag. There is, you know, a couple of famous books, but not anything like the range. So that's a factor. Then there's also the, the attitude in Russia to the period of the past and the USSR and Stalin particularly that is important because there does seem to be something of a reappraisal of the USSR and Stalin's role going on. So if we're not careful, the tragedy of the Gulag looks potentially could be lost. So where are those Gulags? How many of them are left? Where are the big ones? And where have they been commemorated as museums? And what's in those museums and what's in other sites? So I deliberately chose to look at Kazakhstan first with a colleague at Glasgow University, Gillam Tilbergen. So we looked at a couple of very significant camps, a very large one in Kazakhstan, Karagonda. Also, it, it's 300 kilometers east to west and 200 kilometers north to south so it contained factories agricultural plants towns cities the gulag was a big part of the economy of the former ussr accounting for about three percent of gdp at its peak so slave labor was fueling the economy all the red army uniforms were made in gulags for oh, wow. example so this big place karagunda uh, in central kazakhstan uh, was of interest to me because there was a museum in one part of it, the former administrative headquarters. So I wanted to look at that. I wanted to look also at a famous women's camp because if you were a, if you were an enemy of the state, they would incarcerate me, but then they would come for my wife and children as well. They'd be taken to a separate camp. The children in turn would be separated from the mothers and taken to separate camps. There, were, there was a network of 18 of these so-called, this is just in the Karagunda region, the so-called mommy's homes. They had a very, very high rate of infant mortality. But how many of these 18 mommy's camps were left, I wanted to find? And where were all these people buried? A lot of them died. So I had to go and find mass graves. So if you kind of start with the onion of the, the museum site and then you, you start to look at, OK, so these orphanages, are there any left? Oh yes, there's quite a big one in Ostarakova, 
and it's still being used as an orphanage today. What? They're using the same building. So you go and visit that orphanage, as I did, in a very, how shall I say, unvisited part of Kazakhstan with my colleague, and talk to people, the retired head of the orphanage who worked there previously. A perspective on the orphanage that doesn't bear out much of the historical reality of what we know of infant mortality here. So another layer of the onion comes off. And then looking for where the burial sites were, because there's very little forensic archaeology that goes on here, so there's no attempt to find where the burial sites are. So unlike somewhere like Germany or Poland, where a site is found and there's an archaeological dig, here we have a lot of sites that local people know about, but nobody talks about. Because it's still part of their past. This country only became independent in 91. I use independent loosely. The people who live in the Karagunda region are either descendants of prisoners or deportees, or descendants of military or incarceration services. So everyone has a past. Now, these are the second or third generation, but this encourages what I would describe as a societal amnesia. Mm. They want to forget this recent past and look forward. This is not unusual. You see this in the Lebanon. You see it elsewhere. But at the end of the day, there is an important story and narrative there, which is to do with why Kazakhstan is such a multicultural country. I couldn't believe it when I visited there. Every race was represented. I was expecting one type of visual identity, and I saw many. And, of course, what I was looking at was the deportation. You know, these people had been moved all over the former Soviet Union by force, and they ended up living there, having partners, having kids. So there's a, a rainbow nation living there now, if you like, which is fine, and it, ethnically it's very diverse and very mixed and quite chilled about that but the root of that is important so I suppose with Kazakhstan it's how is a country like that beginning to confront its past because there's another element which is to do with the relationship with Russia mm -hmm. it has the world's longest land boundary Kazakhstan and Russia the relationship with Russia is very significant very important and Kazakhstan is the wealthiest of the Stans. Lots of oil, lots of gas, lots of mineral wealth. Big country, not many people. So you have an interesting dynamic there going on with Russia, which will influence what, you, what narratives you yeah. explore and what you don't explore. So, yes, it's fascinating stuff there. So, yeah, it's just I'm very lucky to be able to win a grant to go and look at this mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, I'm trying to get another even bigger grant now to look at Gulag history in Kazakhstan and Russia because I think, you know, you have to step into the, the lion's mouth, you know, to try and really understand it. So that's my, my next one, if we get the grant, of course. But in the meantime, there's an important story there. So I've, I've been twice to to look at it and to uh, explore this stuff. So there's papers coming out, actually, yeah. John, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much for talking to me. Really enjoyed that. No problem, my friend, yeah. Excellent. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the show, and I hope you'll join us again soon when we'll be talking to another researcher from Glasgow Caledonian University. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer, and this has been The Common Good Podcast. Mm -hmm.